Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. New activation and upfront payment for three-month plan required. Taxes and fees extra. Additional restrictions apply. See mintmobile.com for full terms. There are two things we've been told we are not supposed to talk about in polite company. Religion and politics. So how about we talk about both of those things today? Caitlin Chess swings by the podcast to talk about how scripture has been used and abused in American politics. And I surprised her with some information she had no idea about in regard to one of the scripture passages she wrote about in her newest book and how it's used by a well-known Christian businessman. This is going to be so much fun. I'm Amy Fritz, and you're listening to the Untangled Faith Podcast, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all that is not good or true, this is the place for you. Here's my conversation with Caitlin Chess, one of my favorite authors slash theologians slash smart people who always gives me something to think about. So I read your first book. And so getting your second book is so fun. But I have to start out by asking you, like, so there's two topics people say that we should never talk about in polite company, (laughs) religion and politics. Yes, This is your second book that has combined the two. And to add to that, you're a woman talking about religion (laughs) and politics. I know this is obvious to you. (laughs) What brought you to this? What made you Mm. think this is a good idea? Yeah, it wasn't really something that I planned to be doing. (laughs) Um, It wasn't something I sat down with a career counselor and thought like, this is the right path for me. It really did feel like so God directed. So I went to Liberty University for college and I was there from 2012 to 2016. And so in those really formative years where you're starting to ask questions about the churches you grew up in, if you grew up in church, you're starting to see if you actually believe the things your parents believe or where the differences are. I was also at this place that is really deeply connected to the history Mm -hmm. of white evangelicalism's involvement in politics. I was a history major, so I was learning that. My senior seminar was actually on the politics and faith of Ronald Reagan. (laughs) So I was like Mm -hmm. learning a lot about the importance of Jerry Falwell, who was the original president and kind of founder of Liberty University. And then I was there at a point when Jerry Falwell Jr., his son, who was the president at the time, was really involved politically in the 2016 election. He was one of the earliest open Christian supporters of Donald Trump. And so I was kind of at the epicenter both of grappling with those questions and there was like national media on campus. It was like very in your face. And then I immediately went to seminary after that. And so I kept thinking about those questions. At the time, I thought, maybe I'm done with that. Like I had wanted to go to law school. God had really redirected me to seminary. I kind of thought... I'm away from this place that was chaotic and stressful to be in for a few years. I'm going to focus on God. I'm not going to be involved in this like worldly stuff. And the 2016 election was still happening my first semester of seminary. So it was still this really relevant question. And by the end of my first year of seminary, I remember thinking, okay, this is something I'm going to think about for a while. This is an important question. It wasn't until my first book came out in 2020. The pandemic was happening. Black Lives Matter protests were happening. I was at a church where there was a lot of conflict over all of those things and a lot of conflict over my work, including a lot of elements of my work that I thought were very uncontroversial, were actually quite controversial. And so there was a period of time in the lead up to the book coming out and then after the book came out where I started to really think both because of discerning with the folks around me that I trusted, trying to really ask God for guidance, like I started to really think, I think this is the rest of my life. (laughs) Like, I think this is what I'm going to do forever. Applied to PhD programs, mostly wanting to do work in political theology and especially interested in programs like the one I'm at now at Duke, where I get to do classes in the political science department and political theory and some stuff in literature and philosophy. And kind of I'm taking this really intense time of study because I came to this place where I thought, this is not for everyone. As you've described, it is like difficult yeah. work. You have to have a certain amount of like thick skin, especially as a woman, but someone has to do it. And I really got to a place where I just thought, I think this is my job forever. <laughs> I love your passion for spiritual formation and how that mm-hmm. has come across 
in your book and in all of the things like your two books and in the conversations I've heard from you mm-hmm. where part of me is like kind of mad that I want an easy answer from Caitlin yeah. and you just <laughs> don't give like I think I, I wrote a big question mark in the book recently of like why is she not just saying this is the way but I think it speaks to the moment we're in you had mentioned a few weeks ago I was listening to you say We want a rule. We want a law about everything, which is a lot easier than having these conversations with real life people and embracing the nuance of things. And so I just see that beautifully illustrated in your new book. Oh, thank you. The first chapter of your book talks about one of the biggest problems in, I would say, like white American evangelicalism is that we look at the Bible and we assume we know what our role is in all of these accounts. (laughs) We are the good guy. And that the promises are for us. There's a whole chapter you did there about the city on a hill. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that setup and what made you decide to Mm -hmm. talk about that, how that has been co-opted in like the American political landscape. Yeah, I found it so interesting when I was doing research on this phrase, this America is a city on a hill, which America is not the only country that has adopted that language for itself by far, but we have done it a lot and we have a certain history of it. And part of that history is its complete kind of separation from even the biblical context at all, not even a specific context in a specific book of the Bible or a certain genre, but just like its association with the Bible is sometimes absent. When Hillary Clinton was campaigning against Donald Trump and trying to like show that there was this like brighter, better idea for America, she talked about Ronald Reagan's city on a hill. I know. I underline that. (laughs) So it is, it comes from this really interesting speech slash sermon slash we're not really sure what exactly it was, but a piece of writing from John Winthrop, who was the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And it's in, it's fascinating to me because this little line where he's quoting from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is clearly not talking about America, definitely talking about the people of God. Yeah. And it really goes unnoticed for a long time. It's not until we're in an era kind of mid 20th century America where we want to draw on our religious history. We want to tell a certain story about ourselves. And Scripture is ripe for abuse that way, to say what version of ourselves can we narrate through biblical language that even for non-Christians in America can come with a certain sense of transcendence or moral power, divine something. Even if it's not connected to the Christian God, there's just some sense that's really powerful. And so for a long time, we didn't use that language. It's now become just all over the place. Trump was actually the first U.S. president since JFK to not use it, which says something about the trajectory of our politics. But it is interesting that for Winthrop, on one hand, he does something really quite dangerous. He directly appropriates promises made to Israel and warnings for Israel, possible judgments for Israel, and applies them to America. So on one hand, we want to say, well, you've done that very quickly and not really correctly. And he even says in this speech, we have ratified this. Like God has ratified this and we have responded. It's like, you don't get to decide that you're in a covenant with God. Like you're not the one that makes it. I was upon you. So on one hand, that's really dangerous. Like it's easy to look at that and think, oh my gosh, that's terrible. On the other hand, people forget. All we know is this city on a hill reference. We forget that in his larger speech, He includes the judgments, which some kind of folks today will only look at the promises. They don't look at the judgments. And his description of the judgments is actually pretty instructive. He's quoting from the prophets and saying, we will be condemned if we mistreat the vulnerable. And his account of the relationship between the wealthy and the poor is not one I'm a fan of. He has a paternalistic hierarchical sense of that. But he does take really seriously, and the Massachusetts Bay Colony for all its failures did often take very seriously this idea that if we are going to have this Christian nation idea, they weren't thinking of a nation at that time, but this like idea of a Christian society or a social order, that won't just mean we're so great. It also means we actually have to sacrifice our own wealth and resources and time on behalf of the vulnerable. And people can be judged if they don't do that. And so we have this really mixed history. I really wanted to communicate like there is good and there is bad, but also to say, just pump the brakes a little bit. If you're putting this kind of relationship on yourself, when the prophets have a lot to say about the nations that we should apply to our nation, I don't want us to not do that. But if we're going to put ourselves in this position of having a unique relationship with God, a special relationship just for the founding of this country, that's where we get into really 
dangerous territory. And that's where we see even in kind of the contemporary era as people used that phrase and went back to not just use an old phrase from the Bible, but to use a phrase that they associated with the Christian founding of America. You always have to ask what kind of motivation is at play here? What kind of story do you want to tell? And are you motivated by more than just a love of scripture? Maybe you're motivated to tell a certain story about America that isn't true. And if it's not true, then it's not a Christian idea. Yeah. And the story we tell about ourselves too, I think is so important. The one reason this stood out to me and just jumped out to me so strongly is this Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Mm. You probably don't know this, but that is the name of the LLC that owns Dave Ramsey's company's buildings. Oh, I did not know that. And that their legal name is the Lampo Group, which they chose from like this Greek name for light. Wow. They just built a brand new building on a hill right off Interstate 65, South Franklin, Tennessee. And their LLC is Matthew, literally, in the Williamson County, Tennessee property database, it says Matthew 5, 14 to 16. My husband worked there. He no longer does. And it was because we thought they were the city on the hill. Sure. But it turned out that it was that picking and choosing of, we want to lean into this when it suits our purpose, but we don't want to lean into this part when it doesn't suit our purpose. These are the conversations that I think are so important because we do like to pick and choose. And it's really hard to honestly evaluate these things and see who we are in the narrative. And so I want to talk about that. You talk about how important it is when we approach scripture. We can't separate politics and theology. Obviously, Mm -hmm. this is where this book is happening. Is that how can we make sure that when we approach scripture... We aren't more formed by our own blind spots and our own preferences for the way government works and the way we have been comfortable voting. How do we make sure that we are putting ourselves in the right place in that? Yeah. What are some questions we can ask? Yeah. Oh, that's great. I think the first difficult thing to say is that like, we can't be sure. We will not come to a place where we feel entirely confident. And I think that's good. I think that's actually one of the first things to ask is how certain am I about my application of scripture? And if I feel 100% certain, then there might be some motivations other than biblical faithfulness at play here Um, because we're fallen humans. And before we were fallen, we were finite. We don't know everything. We don't have access to, to God like directly. And so we are going to make mistakes. We're going to interpret scripture wrongly. And we have a rich history that proves that to us. I think one of the really important things is to read widely. Sometimes our biases play out in terms of just where we go naturally. And we think that's where everyone would go, right? So if a situation presents itself and we're like, oh, I know the passage to go to, maybe pump the brakes a little bit. Maybe that's not the right passage to go to. Maybe your selection of that passage as the instructive one has sort of weighted your answer in a certain direction. I mean, this is what I feel like I end up saying a lot when it comes to scripture, especially scripture as we want it to inform our politics, is it's going to start with just better and more reading of scripture in contexts where we aren't looking for a specific answer to a specific question. Yeah. If there's anything that changed throughout American history and our use of scripture in politics, it's not that we've used it more or less or that we've used it better or worse. It's that we've used less and less obscure references as history has gone on because we don't know the Bible as well. So politicians used to be able to make much more obscure references than they can make today. So I think that's a huge part of reading widely, even in places that you think aren't applicable to your situation. I think a lot of Christians, especially when it comes to questions about money, go to Proverbs because they're like, it's Mm -hmm. short, pithy, I'll find stuff there. There's a lot (laughs) that both the Old and New Testament have to say about money that doesn't come packaged in the little paragraph that the heading says advice about money. So watch how much the headings in your Bible that are not inspired text are shaping what you think is going on there. And then the other really important thing that I think people know, but really struggle to implement is reading in a diverse community, ideally embodied, like you have a Bible study group in your community at your church. I I'm very aware that there are a lot of people going, well, my church isn't diverse. That's, we know statistically that's true of most churches in the U.S. 
that's a much larger conversation about how that could change. But even if you're someone who's like, I don't have a lot of control over who's in my church. I'm not in leadership. There's not another church for me to go to that's more diverse. We have more access than we have ever had before to a diversity of perspectives on scripture. And so in some ways, it feels like this big burden. And in some ways, it is more work than it would be to just read your Bible alone at home. But in a lot of ways, it's easier than it's ever been to say, okay, I'm in I'm in Proverbs and I really want to follow what it says about money or about sex or about relationships or whatever. Who out there has written about this that is not coming from the perspective that I'm coming from? And if there's anything that scripture teaches us about like finding ourselves in the story, it's that the powerful tend to have the hardest time accurately seeing themselves. <laughs> yeah, and the yeah. vulnerable tend to have a perspective that opens up more of what God is doing. That tends to be where the spirit is moving. And so just checking our own biases, having this sense of like, I really might be wrong about this, and then having some better general Bible reading habits so that when the situation presents itself, you have become more of the kind of reader and the kind of person who can approach that situation well. I feel like most of the time the problem is you wait until the situation presents itself. You have to vote. You have a conflict in your church. You have something in your family and you go, hey, now I'm going to become the good Bible reader that can do this well. And it's not completely too late at that point. The Holy Spirit does amazing things, but you've really missed out on a lot of the preparatory work that could make it more fruitful. Yeah. That was something that I was surprised to see in your book is your emphasis on reading in community. Mm -hmm. I was not surprised to hear you talk about reading widely and understanding context, but I was surprised that you're saying it doesn't end at just realizing the context of a verse but that you did say, this is really important. You can sit down and read something with somebody else. And when they have a different life situation, they will interpret it differently. Yeah. The whole de definition of a blind spot is we don't see it. So how do you personally yeah. work at seeing your blind spots? And how do you find community that can help you see things differently? One thing in a really like immediate embodied way is, I mean, I am part of a small group at my church that reads scripture together every Sunday night. And it is not the most diverse. I wish that it was more diverse. I actually wish I had more opportunities intergenerationally just for it to be more yeah. diverse. It's a group that's pretty in this in a similar age range. But one thing that we do that I think has been really helpful is it's our regular practice to we're in a book of the Bible, whatever one we discuss what it is. And we take turns reading it out loud until everyone has read aloud for however long they felt and then we're done. And there's something about, first of all, if we're like in an epistle, that's one or two in a night. <laughs> like we're doing the whole thing, at least. Yeah. If it's like Isaiah or Jeremiah or the Psalms, we're reading a big chunk still. Like you're getting the full kind of segment of whatever we're reading. And so just that practice of like in community together, we have read a big chunk of scripture out loud and together with different voices. And not everyone is like, the best reader of it, you know, but we're committed to everyone being involved in it. I mean, if someone wants to read for a short amount of time, they can. I think something about that changes it. And then the discussion we have afterwards isn't just, okay, this one verse spoke to me when this yeah, is the yeah. one thing that it's, we've read a big chunk. We've had time to marinate with it. And we're a community of people that spend time together with kids in the nursery and like showing up for events in our community. And that kind of thing changes things as well. For me as well, I really have have relied on a few different places. I can send you some links if you think people would be interested. A few different places that have cultivated lists of both women commentators of scripture and people of color and try to make sure whatever I'm reading, studying, especially for my actual work studying scripture, yeah. but even for my kind of daily reading, it's incredible what resources are out there. And it does tend to be true. I haven't quite formulated why this is true. But I have found it does tend to be true that women and people of color, when they write commentaries on scripture, don't write the kind of like really dry, technical, academic stuff as much, <laughs> which partially could be a sad thing of like the academy still has a lot of barriers. And so people don't get the publishing opportunities they should get. But I do think part of it probably is that those tend to be people who have been really rooted in the church and care about the church or care about their larger community and want things to be useful for them. I just saw a friend the other day post about uh, Willie James Jennings' Acts commentary, an incredible commentary. It's not like overly technical. And it it has pushed me in my reading of Acts. It, he has a perspective that isn't mine and a background that isn't mine. And so 
it's helpful that they're not those dry academic commentaries because I think they're for all people just to be like, this is yeah. just a perspective that someone has. Another really great one, Alan Bozak's commentary on Revelation, which I think is called Comfort and Protest, similarly is like not super dry and academic, but it is coming from a South African context, thinking about what Revelation means for an oppressed people group, what it means for politics in his community. And again, we live in a world where like libraries, internet, like we have access to more things than we've ever had before. So it does take intentionality. The embodied community part takes way more intentionality actually than just finding books and stuff online. And it will not always be great. You'll have plenty of weeks with a Bible study or an intentional, like diverse group of people reading scripture together where you're like, wow, no one had great insights or that one person said something very weird and I don't like it. (laughs) And that's part of it. That's that I think sometimes people give up on those things because they're waiting for the magical experience where like they have this like really profound moment with, and it's not going to always be like that, but that's how spiritual formation is. It's not like this one magical bam thing. It's like, I was in that group for five years. And after five years, I didn't even realize it happening, but I'm a different person than I read scripture differently than I did before. Yeah. One thing you didn't say, but I bet you would lean into and probably have is community with people that have voted differently than you. Yeah. I think this is really important. And especially in our churches, it can be easy to assume that when we show up on a Sunday morning, that everybody that ascribes to our same theology ascribes to the same peoples that they're going to vote for in the ballot yeah. box. But, and that may be true for the most part, you know, there may be a big percentage of people in a certain church that all vote the same way, but it isn't necessarily the case. Yeah. And so how can we, in a time where it's going to be even more polarized, we're heading into another presidential election season, people are already starting to feel that anxiety and their shoulders are getting tense. How can we bring our spiritual formation and embrace community when it comes to staying in relationship with people that vote differently? Yeah. Oh, Amy, that's such a good question because (laughs) can you solve this for us? Yeah, right, right. I, I'm doing this um, Sunday school class with my church in the fall on politics, just like a month of me talking about politics. And I go to a very politically diverse church. And wow. I was telling some, and it is like a lot of churches, there's a certain amount of it that's a generational divide at my church. Yeah. And I was talking to some of the younger people at the church about doing this. And I was like, it's open to everyone, like anyone can come. And one of the younger women said something like, I just don't think I can be in a room talking about politics with some of these people. And in in a certain sense, I completely understand what she's saying, that it it's silly to think that politics is just this intellectual exercise that like we should be able to disagree and not hate each other or not be afraid of talking or, but we know that that's not true. Bound up in our political lives are all of these larger questions about identity and community and ultimate meaning. And for Christians, really deeply held convictions about God and humans and how human communities should function. And if we disagree on that, it is painful. Like not only can people's criticisms of our political positions not just feel like, but truly in a certain sense are criticisms of ourselves and our communities. That's not a healthy relationship probably to have to those policies, but it's often how most of us are. But also it just gets at something deep in you. Even if you don't feel criticized, you can just feel as you described that anxiety rising. I mean, I've had it in church before where we don't even end up getting to a real conflict place, but it could happen and it just starts to. And so I think part of it is spending time intentionally thinking through both what kind of posture you want to be in. It's not obvious, actually, what kind of feelings you want to feel or how you want your breathing to be or the state Mm -hmm. you want your body to be in. Like preparing in advance and sitting down for just a few minutes and thinking like, how will I know I am relaxed and secure. This is what my body will feel like. This is how I will breathe. And then asking, formulating for yourself, this is pretty, it's not entirely individual, but in some sense it is, thinking through what does it look like in my body, in my breathing, in my mind and heart when I'm not in that secure, relaxed place? And how could I maybe make, just write down like a list of things that you will start to feel when you're getting that kind of anxious sense? And how can you just notice that when it's happening? You won't always be able to just turn it off, but just being able to notice can help you prepare to, because sometimes people have probably experienced this 
even not in political context, all of a sudden I'll just be like thinking about something, getting anxious. My fingers will clench. My shoulders are really tight. And sometimes just noticing that and going, no, we're not doing that. We're going to kind of chill. Yeah. That was a different situation. That happened before. Yeah. It doesn't have to happen now. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is unfortunately, again, one of those things where it's going to be worse in the beginning than it is later in the conversation or later in the relationship. And so for my church, part of my desire to do this is when we do this in the fall, we'll still be a year out from the election. And I want us to be thinking about these questions. They're still difficult. They're still scary. We're not in the heat of it where this is our whole world 24-7. And that's, I think, really important, which is why I wanted this book to come out not in an election year, to be like, it takes preparation. I'm curious about what. Yeah. Yeah. We have to think about these questions in advance, not only for like the relational spiritual question, but also if we do want scripture to inform our political positions, that's not work that happens in a month. Like you can't do that real quick cramming before a vote. And so- Taking intentional time to say, if I know, like it's Thanksgiving, I'm preparing for Thanksgiving with my family, or I'm preparing for, we are doing a series in Sunday school at my church, or there's a sermon series coming up, or how could I begin to have conversations that are on the fringes of that topic and in a context that feels a little less high temperature? How could I practice? How could I begin to build? I really think there's a certain amount of this that is building up resilience And then doing some like work after a conversation to evaluate what was my body doing? What was my breathing doing? But also really trying to, with a kind of real honesty with yourself, (laughs) evaluating, okay, this comment really was the comment that gave me a lot of anxiety or made me really angry or made me want to check out of this conversation. What was going on with this comment? It wasn't just about student debt. It was about my feeling that this person was calling me lazy for taking out some loans for school. Or it wasn't just about this policy about paid family leave. It was a question about what moms should be doing with kids. And I felt attacked by this, you know, and and recognizing both that you want to see that in yourself. It's good to evaluate that in other people to be aware of like, okay, when they reacted that way, I don't think it was about just this thing. It was about this larger thing. But then not just doing that for other people, not just saying like, oh, they have these deeply held senses of identity and community that are at stake. Like, it's me too. And even if I think I'm genuinely on the right side of this policy question, there's more at stake for me too. And so how can I be honest and reflect upon it afterwards and ask, okay, what then is revealed to me about what I need to work on? What am I holding too closely? What parts of my identity have started to take over? What things feel... Like I'm holding them so tightly, I can't open my fingers even a little bit to consider another opinion or perspective. Those are the kind of things that you're probably not going to do that right off the bat in the midst of the the conversation, but you could prepare and you can reflect at the end. Now for a quick break. Not long ago, I made a decision that changed my life and my relationships. I started going to counseling and I'm so glad I did. If you've been considering getting started with counseling, faithful counseling makes it so easy to get started. I know you don't like talking on the phone, so it's good news that you can start the process without even picking up the phone to talk to someone. The Untangled Faith Podcast is brought to you by my listeners who support me on Patreon. It is also brought to you by Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is a Christian counseling service with more than 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 states with access by video or phone sessions or chat or text. There are therapists with expertise in trauma, depression, family conflicts, and more. You can ask for a new counselor at any time, and financial aid is available for those who qualify. Untangled Faith podcast listeners get 10% off their first month from our sponsor, Faithful Counseling. Go to faithfulcounseling.com untangled. Fill out a questionnaire, and you'll be matched with a counselor. That's faithfulcounseling.com untangled. Now back to the show. I'm thinking two things as you're saying this. One is, again, I'm irritated, Caitlin, that the only person I can control is myself. I'm really... <laughs> If I would have kept making only the minimum payments on my credit cards, my debt would have taken me 47 years to pay off. These are real National Debt Relief customers. I knew I wasn't going to be able to get out of debt by myself. Credit card, medical, or personal loan debt? National Debt Relief negotiates with your creditors to reduce what you owe. National Debt Relief got me out of debt. You could be debt-free in as little as 24 to 48 months. Visit nationaldebtrelief.com to learn more and get started. nationaldebtrelief.com frustrated about that. You haven't told me how I can change anyone else. Uh But two, I'm thinking 
this is really brilliant to have this book come out a year in advance because mm-hmm. I think people's hearts are more open before they've already early voted. Yeah. Not everybody early votes, but like people have already made up their mind yeah. and say you've early voted and then they pick up this book. You're going to feel all sorts of needing to defend the decision you have already made. And that is a human nature thing. So this, I just think this is such a great opportunity to be like, okay, we have a little bit of distance. It's not like four years, but it's one year. Yeah. Maybe some primaries will have happened. Maybe some people have already dropped out of the presidential race, but we do have more of a chance to have our hearts be open to different things. And another thing you had pointed out in the book is that it is not a new thing from the patriots and the loyalists to the civil war, to social justice issues, to the civil rights things, is that we have always, when it comes to politics, cherry-picked verses. And it's we can't be like, it's those other people that don't take the Bible seriously. (laughs) We take the Bible seriously, but they do not. Like this is as old as the founding of the colonies, is that there have been people that have loved the scripture and have read certain parts of it. So you also said that is a really interesting thing to lean into looking at what are the scripture verses that we tend to shy away from? Talk to me about that. (laughs) Yeah. You described it so well. It's true that we've always had the problem with cherry picking. And as I said before, we always have certain things that we're already inclined to like. And in some ways, that's not bad. There are parts of scripture you enjoy more than others. There's parts you're supposed to enjoy more than others. But it's worth asking what your position in the world inclines you to. So it's interesting that a lot of, especially people who are sort of evaluating their relationship with church, very understandably in the US are queasy about revelation because I've seen it so abused and it feels scary. And and But there are other people who have been really deeply, intimately affected by violence, by oppression, who have come to revelation hungry because they're look the violence doesn't scare them. They're comfortable. They've seen violence all over. They want to know yeah. who wins and what happens yeah. eventually. Where is the redemption? Where's the healing? Where's the resurrection? And so it's important to ask, like, why am I drawn to certain things and why am I repulsed by others? Some of those answers are good ones. I remember being in a Sunday school class. We were in Genesis. And the sad thing is I can't even remember which sexual assault we were talking about because there are many in that book. And a young woman in the class asked the teacher, who is a young man, I'm really upset about this. I'm really disturbed by it. And the person teaching the class just said, why? That's strange. And I was like losing my mind in the back. Of course you should feel horrified. It's a real thing. Like the point of this story is for you to be repulsed. And this is terrible. Like only someone who has had zero exposure to the horror of this kind of thing could be like, why are you so upset about this? So it's important to like recognize there are a range of reactions we should have and can have, and they're not all bad. Our feelings are indicators of what's going on, not evil things, but to evaluate why and to spend time thinking. And and this is really, I think the desire that I have, and I think what the history really teaches us is if we wait until the political situation presents itself, we will have no other option but cherry picking. (laughs) Like student debt happens. Roe v. Wade is overturned. We go to a concordance, which there's a whole fascinating history I won't bore you too much with, but like of how concordances became so important in American history. And it really boils down to like, we want to turn scripture into a math equation. And so the more charts we can have, the more comforting we feel that we have a scientific approach to this. So we go to our concordance, we look up passages about pregnancy or we look up things about debt or we and we find we just make a list of every verse and it is really like math like we'll just compute what the answer is based on all these different numbers and it doesn't work that way there's a spiritual significance to the number of times the english word money or fear was listed in the concordance right (laughs) right and so Really, the opposite of cherry picking verses is not, and I think this is the impulse we have, is to go, okay, if it's so inevitable, and I do, it kind of is, that we just cherry pick verses to serve what we already believed politically, we, we should just not. We should just not have the Bible be involved in politics. I think the opposite of cherry picking verses is not kicking the Bible out of politics. The opposite of cherry picking verses is having good political theology and saying we have yeah. spent time looking at the whole story of scripture and really seeing what is the role of 
government? What does authority mean? What are what is our role in all of this? And Stanley Hauerwas, who's written a lot about Russian ethics, a very important theologian, wrote a book called Unleashing Scripture about kind of scripture and America. This is a quite old book now. And he made this very provocative claim in the beginning, which is what he does all the time, make very provocative claims. And his provocative claim was, we need to take the Bible out of the hands of American Christians. Like (laughs) they have misused it. They don't know what they're doing with it. We should just take it out of their hands. And I have learned a lot from him and really respect him. But I think instead of taking the Bible out of the hands of American Christians, they should just open it. (laughs) They should read it. They should spend some time thinking about it as having real authority over them rather than wielding it as a weapon or awkwardly holding it like a prop in front of a church or posting a picture on social media proving that they own one. They should read it and really see what it might surprisingly say to their political life. And that's, I think that's what's required if we're not going to cherry pick is just we read more and we try to really not just read widely in the sense of reading more scripture, but saying every genre of scripture and every part of the canon has something to say to our political life. If the position I'm taking just makes no sense in the context of this entire section of scripture, I have to reevaluate it. And that will take like years of work. I'm getting a doctorate because I feel like I need a lot of help doing it. But even for someone who's not going to spend all their life studying this, We have examples in scripture, Romans 13 being a great one, of people working this out in the midst of the real political pressures that they were under, ordinary people without tons of education. And we have the opportunity to do that too, if we're willing to do it in advance of, oh, I'm in a voting booth and I got to pull up the Bible app and figure out what's going on. Yeah. Which person should I vote for? Where is that in the Bible app? You mentioned the like student loan forgiveness thing. That's a big deal on a lot of people's minds right now. And it is so easy to pull out the Bible verse that says, if a person doesn't work, they shouldn't eat. Is that in Proverbs? Proverbs. It sounds like a proverb. Or verses about Jubilee and like forgiveness yeah. and giving land back to people. And I just love how you say, if there is one or the other of those verses that you just don't want to think about, read that verse, maybe. Mm-hmm. Not that you need to have your mind changed, but to understand I th- as I think about some of these things, I think maybe there isn't a one political solution that's out there yeah. that exists right now. And I think sometimes that gets in our way and we think, which one is the Bible way? And maybe there isn't a Christian approach out there to some of these things, a perfectly Christian answer to something. Yeah. yeah. Maybe starting with that is a really good starting place. I don't know. What does that sound yeah. like to you? Yes. It really is. If there's anything I want people to get out of this book, it's that the work of discerning what scripture says to our political life now is both work. It's never settled. There's never a single list of here's all the things you have to know. And then bam, you, there's no voter guide that will just fix all of this. Oh, man, you're just I know. all the family councils, <laughs> all the states right now. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry. But also that work of discerning what scripture says to our political life now requires also discerning where we are now, who we are, as we've talked about, but also what is happening now. Um, One of the examples, and I I get a little bit into this in the book, but it was a little too off topic to go fully into, but I was really interested in how scripture was used in the Prohibition era, which overlaps with a lot of the eras that I'm covering. And it's interesting to me during the fight about abolition, when it was using Bible verses pro or against enslaving human beings made in the image of God, horrifically, there was often this impulse on either side, especially the white abolitionists and white slaveholders to say, I have found in scripture a universal applicable rule that explains everything. And it was obvious the whole time. It didn't require any discernment. It didn't, it, it didn't require <laughs> to sacrifice anything. You know, it's just there it is. Yeah. Both of them wanted to claim that because that was a pretty enlightenment era idea, like universal moral truth that's easily accessible to the human mind. And there you go, bam, there it is. Which by the way, is not how black enslaved or free people interpreted scripture in that period at all. But they did something similar because that's a similar era as prohibition. Instead of saying what they might have appropriately said, which would be, we're looking around, alcohol is not described as universally bad in scripture, but we're looking around and seeing that it's really harming vulnerable people. Women and children in particular are harmed by men who are drinking too much, abusing them, not financially supporting them, et cetera. Scripture has a lot to say about how we treat the vulnerable. It has some stuff to say about drunkenness. We can kind of look at what scripture says, look at what's happening now and say, there need to be some restrictions on alcohol. Things have gotten bad. 
Instead, what they said was, we need to find a universal rule applicable in all times and places with no regard for what's happening. And so what they needed to do is do some weird hermeneutical gymnastics where it was like, no, actually all the water Jesus turned into wine at the wedding at Cana was just basically grape juice. Or like really when a psalmist talks about the goodness of wine, he was really talking about grape juice. They had to say things that just weren't consistent with what scripture actually said because they were looking for the wrong thing. They were looking for a universal rule that gave no exceptions, had no context, nothing like that. Instead of saying, actually, scripture gives us good precedent. This is like the history of a lot of the New Testament was them. They had the Jewish scriptures and they were like, okay, what does it mean now? How does it apply to the need we have in front of us? And that's much harder work than just like, there's a rule. There you go. Oh, much harder work. This sounds like this is quintessential, Caitlin, that we can't have a rule. (laughs) There is no rule or law that's going to fix this. (laughs) I made so many notes on your book, but I was like, Hmm. read this from the book because I put lots of stars next to it and it was too long for me to write it. So I'm going to read your own words to you. Oh, thank you. See if you recognize them. And this is in the magic of the market chapter, page 111. And It says here, this has broader implications than how we frame the debate. When we begin with political categories and questions, who should I vote for? Which party is more Christian? Which economic system is more biblical? We will miss biblical commands that do not fit our predetermined questions. Our binary thinking blinds us as to the way scripture confronts our favored party in policy. It becomes easier to pick and choose which verses to shape our political work. And it often ends up yielding our spiritual formation to a political party or a television network. Tell me about that, Caitlin. (laughs) I like have it like all underlined in circles with lots of like stars next to it. Oh, good. Yeah. I mean, it was so interesting to me. That chapter is specifically talking about how scripture was used in a pretty intense period of kind of fight between mostly kind of conservative Protestants, evangelicals really, about capitalism and socialism and like Reaganomics and what is the right kind of economic system and what is the right size of government. And there's a lot of concerns about the bureaucratic system we'd created and all this stuff. But what was so interesting to me was that the number, I mean, I read so many bad books. I read some good books, but I read so many bad books published (laughs) in that era. And I had to keep reminding myself, like, I'm pretty young. Like, I forget that, like, this is not that long ago, like 70s, 80s as my parents were alive. Um, But reading all of these books, it was so interesting to me that, like, almost all of them, either in their title or at some point in, like, a chapter title or a subtitle or something, it would say, capitalism or socialism? What does the Bible support? I just remember thinking, not only it's a binary, first of all, but second of all, like, those are not the categories native to scripture at all. Neither of those things existed at the time any part of scripture was written. I don't think what that means is the Bible has nothing to say to those questions. That's That was how a lot of people were framing the question at the time, which again, not great framing. But even then, scripture has something to say to those questions. However, it doesn't just answer that question and it doesn't answer that question directly. That's not what it's trying to do. And so if you go to it with that question, you will miss things it is saying to you that don't answer that question, but are very relevant to why you are asking that question. If you're asking that question because you're trying to figure out what your personal responsibility is, Bible has a lot to say about that, but it doesn't come under the heading socialism versus capitalism. If you're <laughs> if you're trying to figure out if the Bible has something to say about how communities are structured to care for the vulnerable, the Bible has so much to say about that, but it's not going right. to come couched in this particular question. And so we can't help that we have questions when we come to scripture. And we should ask lots of questions about scripture. But Karl Barth, one of my favorite theologians, has this beautiful essay, The Strange New World of the Bible, very famous essay, which I would just encourage everyone to read. You can get it online easily. It's just beautiful. And if you know a little bit about Barth, it's even more beautiful because he was really coming out of this era of real disillusionment with his theological mentors, something we can relate to many of us, where he was he had watched many of his teachers sign on to Germany's involvement in World War I in a really nationalistic, militaristic way. And then, of course, he lived through the German church's capitulation to the Nazi party. So he saw things get yeah. really bad. And he not only saw the political failures of his mentors, he saw great theological failure. To him, it was a confusion of the gospel for this political program. 
And so part of his writing of this essay is, I discovered the Bible. Like, it's not always true. Some of our caricatures are not true, but it is true that German liberal theology at that point really was ignoring the Bible. And so Bart was like, look at this amazing thing I found. Like, it's incredible. And one of the things he says is, if you go looking for kind of pious platitudes, you'll find it. Like, go ahead, go ask it those questions and it'll give them to you. Fine. If you go looking to be enrolled in a redemptive story, you will get that. So go look for that. That's what you really want. And I think the same is true for our political questions. Like if you ask the Bible, socialism or capitalism, you'll get an answer. Like you can find a way to construct an answer there. I don't think it's faithful to scripture. But if you go in and ask, what is required of me by God when it comes to my neighbor? And what does a human community that cares for the vulnerable look like? You'll find some answers that might make you vote differently, maybe. They almost certainly will make you relate to your neighbors differently. They might make you spend your money differently. They might make you do some things that make you seem really foolish by the world's standards. And that's the kind of question that you really want to be asking, the kind of question that would lead you into more Christ-likeness rather than, great, I have an answer to this yes or no question so I can vote this certain way. My final question for you is in regard to that pastor that is looking at this upcoming political season and they are already dreading it. Yeah. They want to faithfully lead. <laughs> they want to faithfully shepherd. Yeah. But they are afraid of stepping into something. What is your words of encouragement for them? I feel like I have to preface what I'm about to say with, I empathize and I am not saying what I'm going to say from a place of, of kind of naive optimism. I have taken some real blows and paid some real costs for what I really believe was faithful response to what God would have me do. And so I understand the fear and I understand and just the exhaustion and like, it's not always the big dramatic thing. It's like, I got 10 emails because of a line I prayed yesterday. Like this is just nuts, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. But I, I have been really struck. I was just recently talking to a group of teenagers at my church about vocation. They were having a whole week retreat and they were thinking about work and rest and worship and like having good rhythms in their life and what they're doing with the rest. It was so great. I wish I had learned stuff like that when I was in high school. But I was, ta- I was supposed to talk to them about my work and where I see God in my work. And unexpectedly for me, what I told them was a story of great failure in my work where the people of God who I trusted to treat me well did not. Mm-hmm. And how close God felt to me in that time because I didn't have the community that I thought I would have. And how I kept going back to Jeremiah who is just my favorite. The book of Jeremiah is my favorite. And and the character as described in the book of Jeremiah is one of my favorites. And I love that there's this part in Jeremiah where Jeremiah is stuck in a pit. They put him in a pit and they say, he's a traitor. He's against us because he's saying that we are going to fall to Babylon. And they're right. That's traitorous talk. And he's sitting there in this pit. He eventually gets out of the pit. But to me, there's this poignant element of this story This one person who is trying to be faithful, who is telling them the truth, that actually wants the goodness of this community is being treated like a traitor. And I think a lot of us, especially many people who are in ministry, have felt that feeling of, I am trying to do what's right. I'm trying to follow Mm -hmm. God. And you're treating me like a threat. You're treating me like I want ill for you when I want good. Yeah. And I turn to that story for comfort, not only because Jeremiah does get pulled out of the pit. So there's a somewhat happy ending. He does not have a happy life, but there's one little nice thing in there. But also just to be reminded that's part of what God intended for us to receive in scripture is this idea that sometimes even among the people of God, what is offered as a gift will be treated as a threat. And Jeremiah is a witness to us of what it looks like to keep on being faithful in spite Mm -hmm. of that real betrayal and hurt by the community that you want the best for, that you genuinely love and want good things for. And I don't know if that's as comforting to other people as it's been to me, but just going to that section of Jeremiah and remembering that he did it, (laughs) that he was faithful in the midst of it, and that our doctrine of the resurrection of the body is our ultimate hope and knowing that even if I make mistakes or even if I seek true justice and faithfulness and am not rewarded, I am awaiting Christ's return to really truly make all things new, wipe every tear from every eye and bring ultimate community, even if I'm not seeing it now. 
And if those pastors want to start that conversation now, a year ahead of yeah. when an election, a presidential election happened, what are some ways that they can help facilitate those conversations in a way that are not scary for people? Yeah. I really think rooting it around scripture is important. I have seen conversations about politics happen that I knew pastors swore would never happen because we didn't say, hey, come on a Tuesday night and we'll just like hash it out about politics. But we said, hey, every Tuesday night for six months, we're in Jeremiah or we're in Isaiah or we're in Luke or any, I mean, truly any book of the Bible you could insert. But there are some that might lend themselves more easily than others to some political conversations. And really saying, one, we then are sharing, even if we don't share interpretations, we're sharing a love for scripture and a sense that we are under its authority. And also, we're not starting with high temperature. We're not starting with, okay, let's hash it out. We're starting with, okay, maybe we have three weeks and the political part never comes up. But then it does. And maybe there, I mean, I literally was in a Bible study going through Jeremiah and we suddenly had curfews because Black Lives Matter protests were happening in our mm -hmm. city and it was getting really difficult at night and it was scary and people were concerned and people in my church had very different opinions about what was happening. But bam, we're in the middle of this deep conversation about injustice in Jeremiah. And we have the kind of built up trust with each other, the relational capital to have this conversation. All of that, I think, is, is why this work is like long work, is both going, we're going to, we're just going to be studying the Bible together. And then also spending some time with whether it's you yourself, the ministry leader, or people who are going to be leading small groups or whoever's going to be involved in it. I really just think it takes some intentionality beforehand to say, we do want to open it up to these conversations. Your impulse might be that in church, we don't talk about this, but we want to be open to it. So here's some tips for places that that conversation might come up. Here's some tips for ways to have that in the most healthy way. But I really think spending time together in scripture and being intentionally open to that place being where you end up, the Holy Spirit's real. <laughs> like things can yeah. really happen. Thank you. I appreciate that. I am so grateful for your time and I am thrilled to tell my listeners to go get your book mm, and to have these conversations you. with your friends. I, one of my biggest hopes for my podcast is that it is a conversation starter for people. I can't have the conversations with everybody, sure, but yeah. where the life change happens is where people get together, kneecap yep. or Zoom to Zoom. <laughs> yeah. And they keep having these conversations in real life. Where yeah. That's where the magic really happens. So thank you. Thank you so much yeah. for your time. I so strongly believe this. I am praying that this conversation you listen to between Caitlin and I will help you start some conversations with your own friends and family. If you want to keep listening to Caitlin and I, I have saved part of our conversation to share with the Untangled Faith Patreon community. We talked about her Enneagram number, and we also talked about what she sees as the Bible's clearest teaching on politics. I've also put together some conversation starters you can find on Patreon, and I'm sharing those conversation starters with all levels of supporters. You can sign up for access to that and all the past bonus audio I've shared at patreon.com slash untangled fate. I'll have a link in the show notes for you. You can find those show notes in your podcast player or by going to untangledfaithpodcast.com slash episodes. If you are on social media, I would love to keep this conversation going over on Twitter, or you can chat with me on Instagram or through the Facebook page. I'm Untangled Faith on Instagram and Facebook, and I'm Faith Untangled on Twitter. The Untangled Faith podcast is hosted and edited by me, Amy Fritz. This podcast is made possible by the support of my Patreon community. A special thanks to producers Michelle Pionic, Phil and Susan Perdue, Pam Forsyth, and Shelley Taylor. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week.